3: Hey, everybody. I'm stepping in at the top because this episode is the surprise I promised at the end of last episode. It's going to sound a little different for reasons that will soon become clear. So I am here simply to assure you that you're in the right place, presuming you're here for the constant. I mean, if you're expecting my brother, my brother, and me, then I don't know what happened. But either way, stick around.
4: So...
2: Jane, what did your dad do? Uh, he worked for Disney um, in many different ways. He worked in the at the tree farm. He worked at the Magic Kingdom. He worked building the Animal Kingdom Park. What else did he do? He worked at the MGM Studios, which I don't think is called MGM Studios anymore. It's called like Hollywood Studios. <laughs> Jane and
0: I work in special education, eighth grade. Uh, so the noises you hear are eighth graders eating lunch, and also us eating lunch in the middle of another very busy day. Hollywood, or something like that. So, um, what was his main job title? Well, for the in, there's
2: different people in charge of different parks. When he started, he was in he was at the Magic Kingdom, so there was somebody else that was overseeing. You know, the the plantings at the other parks. Mm-hmm. And then he moved to the tree farm, which I think is what they called it, where they grow all the trees and topiaries as kind of backups for, the, for what's going on in the park. So if anything should happen to any tree or topiary, they can whisk in in the middle of the night with a replacement and nobody will be the wiser. It'll look like it's always been there. There's n- you're never going to see a sapling growing in the parks. You're always going to see a mature tree that looks like it's always been there. You're also never going to see anybody like planting flowers during the day or pruning or mowing or doing any of that. That all happens in the middle of the night. Why? Because it, it's it's the magic of Disney. <laughs> So Do you think everything that everything is perfect at all times it's there's never and you don't see the behind the curtain. you don't see what the 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 work involved right It's yeah. all magical so it's all
0: magical. it just magically is always perfect, yes, yes, and the thought that someone was working was like right, unpleasant or mundane
2: right well, I think it like a probably the thought is that it takes away from the fantasy of it right that you're not going to see people out there like mopping floors and scrubbing the the walkways and stuff because it's just always sparkly and lovely, right? Right. <laughs> the guests are supposed to just, you know, feel that everything is just always lovely at Disney, right? Yeah. It's magical.
0: Walt Disney claimed, and who can say this is what really happened, but he claimed that his idea to build Disneyland came to him while he was sitting in Griffiths Park in L.A., watching his two daughters go around and around on a gilded carousel that had been built back in 1926. So he's watching this carousel, and he's thinking about a park. A park where parents and children can all go have a nice clean happy safe time together
1: well it came about when my daughters were very young and i saturday was always uh, daddy's day with the two daughters so we'd start out and try to go someplace with you know different things and i would take them to the merry ground and i took them different places and as I'd sit there while they, uh, they rode the merry-go-round, did all these things, sit on a bench, you know, eating peanuts, I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a amusement enterprise built where that the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. So that's how Disneyland started. Well, it took many years. It was a, a old period of maybe 15 years.
0: Well, Disney was a utopian. And he was obsessed with having the latest and most innovative technology, which is to say, he was interested in always looking forwards, not backwards. We've all heard stories, I think. Anyone who has ever known someone who worked for the Disney parks has a story like Jane's. Maybe it's not as fantastical as 50-year-old trees being planted by cranes in the middle of the night, but the stories are eerily similar nonetheless. All trash in the Disney parks must be picked up immediately by a cast member. That's Disney-speak for employee. And they're not allowed to just bend over and pick it up. Oh no, you have to scoop it up. Cast members do not bend over. Basically, anything unpleasant or anything that simply does not fit into the illusion of Disney parks is hidden away, literally underground, in underground utility corridors or utilidors, directly beneath the parks. So while you are above ground at Magic Kingdom in Florida, waiting in line for Pirates of the Caribbean or watching a parade directly underneath you may be a cast member cafeteria or dressing room, maybe storage for extra merchandise or costumes, and speaking of trash, there is the AVAX system down there, which is to say the Automated Vacuum Assisted Collection System, which whisks away all 80,000 daily pounds of garbage the Magic Kingdom accumulates at 35 miles per hour through a massive underground vacuum system. And I promise I won't spend the entire episode talking about garbage removal, but it's pertinent to what I want to talk about here. Unpleasantness. Unhappiness at Disneyland, no matter how slight is whisked away, either literally whisked away at 35 miles per hour underground or figuratively whisked away. Nothing unpleasant can exist at Disneyland, certainly not death. But it does. It does. Death exists in Disneyland despite all of Walt Disney's very best efforts because utopias are impossible. You cannot whisk everything away, no matter how much you want to. Reality, darkness, morbidity, unpleasantness, it always finds a way in. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I am your host, Heather Chrysler, You may have noticed something was a little different about this episode. Don't worry, Mark is fine. If you're a regular listener of The Constant, a Constantine, you know me as someone Mark mentions occasionally and you've heard my voice pop up on the show now and then. But even you regular folks may not realize that Mark researches, writes, records and produces The Constant all on his own every two weeks and that, that is a whole lot of work. So, in an effort to give mark a spring break i myself researched wrote recorded and produced this episode all on my own and since it is spring break did i mention it was spring break i thought i would take all of us on a little trip to disney Because Disney is weird and fun. And of all the eccentric, mega-rich businessmen who shaped America, Walt himself has never, at the point I'm writing this, shown up on The Constant. And to that I say, Mark, why not? You love weirdos. So, Constantines, I hope you enjoy the ride. I'm thrilled to be here taking over The Constant Don't worry if I'm not your cup of tea. (laughs) And you really miss Mark. I get it. He's great. And he will be back in two weeks. But for now, this is The Constant A History of Getting Things Wrong. I am your host, Heather Chrysler. This week's episode Happy Place. Welcome to Disneyland. So, my favorite Disney death—yes, I have a favorite for literary reasons—happened in 1973. In the Disneyland of 1973, there was no Space Mountain or Big Mountain Thunder Railroad. There was no Splash Mountain or Star Tours. But it was still recognizably Disneyland. The Disneyland monorail was over a decade old. You could visit the Enchanted Tiki Room, ride It's a Small World, or Pirates of the Caribbean— And as of just a few years prior, you could ride through the Haunted Mansion. Of course, there were the attractions that had been part of the park since its conception, like Tom Sawyer Island. I actually don't think I have personally ever been on Tom Sawyer Island. Having grown up on the West Coast, I did love Disneyland as a kid, but an attraction from the mid-50s, when you have to board a log raft in Frontierland to go across the rivers of America in order to access, Child Heather would have preferred to wait in line for Big Mountain Thunder Railroad for the 10th time or wander through New Orleans Square. The Rivers of America was also built as part of the original park in 1955. It surrounds Tom Sawyer Island, and in addition to ferrying log rafts from the mainland to the island, it is also the home of the Mark Twain Riverboat and the sailing ship Columbia, a full-scale replica of the Columbia Rediviva, the first American ship to circumnavigate the globe. The rivers in the rivers of America is plural because the attraction does quadruple duty, representing not only the Mississippi, upon which the Twain novels The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn take place, but also the Columbia, the Potomac, and the Rio Grande. As for Tom Sawyer Island, um, do you remember the novel from school? Okay, quick recap. In chapter 8, Tom has gotten into some trouble and he decides he is the most unloved child on earth. So he takes his friend, Joe Harper, into a life of crime and the boys decide to become pirates. Tom and Joe go get Huckleberry Finn, the feral son of the town drunk, and they decide to rendezvous at midnight. The boys bring along some not very helpful provisions. They board a log raft, and they head out for Jackson's Island in the middle of the Mississippi.
3: I can do it as though I'm in a uh, community theater uh, production of Tom Sawyer. Three miles below St. Petersburg, at a point where the Mississippi River was a trifle over a mile wide, there was a long, narrow, wooded island with a shallow bar at the head of it. And this offered well as a rendezvous. It was not inhabited. It lay far over towards the further shore, abreast a dense and almost wholly unpeopled forest.
0: Anyway, on the island, they, you know, jack around, they build a fire, camp out, skinny dip, explore. Soon the boys see a ferry boat dragging the river, and they think someone must have drowned. And they quickly realize it's them. They've drowned. And you would think that they would feel bad for causing pain to their loved ones, but instead, the boys are thrilled that they are missed at all. Tom Sawyer, being Tom Sawyer, takes his vanity of being missed to new lows and sneaks back to the mainland to watch his own funeral. What an incredible dick that Tom Sawyer was. But back to Disneyland... Here are some of the current and historical things you can do on Disney's Tom Sawyer Island. A quick content warning here. While these days Disneyland has turned Tom Sawyer Island hardcore toward a pirate theme, it used to be all about a 1950s idea of Mark Twain's America. And there's some super racist stuff around Native Americans in the history of this attraction. Just FYI. Back in 1956 on Tom Sawyer Island, you could visit Fort Wilderness. The fort was stuck forever in the War of 1812. The American flag it flew had only 15 stars. Fort Wilderness was closed to guests in 2003 and was torn down in 2007 after a long-neglected termite infestation, RIP OG Fort Wilderness. They rebuilt it, but it's not accessible to guests. Maybe we're better off without Fort Wilderness, however. Um, Here, let me read you a section of the Tom Sawyer Island brochure from 1956 so you can cringe along with me. Within the gates, there is a canteen and trading post stocked with pelts, guns, knives, and Indian craft. In the regimental headquarters, Davy Crockett and George Russell, U.S. Army scouts, can be seen reporting to Major General Andrew Jackson during the Cherokee Indian campaign. From the parapets and blockhouses can be seen the vast, untamed American wilderness the deer, moose, bear, and wildlife of the primitive forest. Beyond the stockade are teepees. Yay! hostile indians on the warpath great a settler's cabin burns in the distance mute evidence of a treacherous attack yes there was a burning cabin literally burning they would set it on fire and the storyline for that burning cabin was that native americans had attacked it There was even a dead settler with an arrow through him. You could only see the cabin by train or boat, you couldn't get there on foot, because according to the Tom Sawyer Island map, the cabin was in, quote, Indian territory, Jesus Christ. In the 1970s, Disneyland realized it might be being a little insensitive, and the storyline of the burning cabin was changed to say that the settlers were killed by river pirates. In the 1990s, the story changed again to say that the settler had accidentally burnt down his own cabin. Really smart. Okay, let's move on from the burning cabin because the dead settler is not the death I am trying to cover here. Okay. In the 2000s, like I mentioned, Disneyland really started re-theming the island to be about pirates. This change was a little bittersweet for Disney fanatics, as Tom Sawyer Island was the only part of Disneyland that Walt Disney truly designed himself. Now that the island is pirates all the time, however, you can go to a pirate shipwreck, a pirate den, castle rock, smuggler's cove, and dead man's grotto. I believe you can still visit Tom and Huck's treehouse, but that is one of the last holdouts of the Mark Twain theme. Back in 1973, though, the island was very much about Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, which is when our actual story takes place. So, in 73, an 18-year-old, Bogdan Delaro and his 10-year-old brother, Dorian Delaro were visiting Disneyland with their family from Brooklyn, New York. Tom Sawyer Island closes earlier than the rest of the park, and the two Delaroes were on the island without their parents when the cast members began rounding up all the last guests to be ferried back to the mainland. In a stunning moment of life imitating fiction, the boys decided to hide out on Tom Sawyer Island and they hopped a fence to hide in some woodland behind the burning cabin. Okay, the fact that these boys decided to hide out on Tom Sawyer Island is so eerily similar in premise to the chapters from The Adventures of Tom Sawyer that I have searched several sources to confirm this is true. Because, I mean, it really has the ring of urban legend, doesn't it? It fits so perfectly with the Tom Sawyer story. But it is true. And after a couple of hours of... I don't know, jacking around on the island, the boys predictably got bored, and knowing that they'd deliberately broken the rules made them hesitant to ask for help getting back to mainland Disney. This was not a well thought out plan. Long story short, the Delaroes decide they are going to swim across the rivers of America back to Frontierland themselves. Now, remember, one of the rivers the Rivers of America is meant to represent is the mighty Mississippi, so this is the thing. It's wide. It's wide, and while it's only about 8 feet deep, it was not designed for swimming. One source I read even said that underwater turbines create an appearance of currents on the river's surface, making swimming much more difficult. But the real problem seems to have been that while 18-year-old Bogdan could swim, 10-year-old Dorian could not, and Bogdan decided to carry his little brother across the river. So Bogdan drowned. He made it only about halfway across the rivers of America. The little one, though, Dorian, he made it. He managed to doggy paddle long enough for a Disney employee to find him and fish him out of the water. When you Google Bogdan's name, a small clipping of a newspaper will come up in your images. It's tiny. You'd easily overlook it, maybe a hundred words. The headline reads, Body Pulled from Disneyland River. And the article, if you can call it that, is as follows. The body of an 18-year-old New York tourist was discovered Saturday from a river in Disneyland's Frontierland area. Eight hours after he was apparently drowned trying to swim the watercourse with his younger brother, police reported. Anaheim police identified the victim as Bogdan Delaro of Brooklyn. His body was located after a night-long search by Disneyland security officers and Anaheim police and firemen, officers said. The body was found in a rapid section of the rivers of America, the watercourse encircling Tom Sawyer's Island, according to park officials. Anaheim investigators reported that about 9.40 p.m. Friday, Delaro and his 10-year-old brother, Dorian, attempted to swim from the island to Frontierland mainland. The younger boy was spotted by park security officers and pulled from the river, police said. The elder Delaro disappeared. Bogdan was actually found the next morning, still in the water, his body stuck on some fake rocks on Tom Sawyer Island. He is buried at Forest Line Memorial Park, Glendale, Los Angeles, and Disney fans send flowers to his grave all the time. This is something I have always loved about Disneyland. It's morbidity. I know that it was supposed to be built as this realization of Walt Disney's boyhood fantasies. It's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, where parents can come and have a magical time with their children and... I can see that, I can. But moreover, I find it really deeply morbid. And I don't totally know where that comes from, that sense of unease about Disneyland. It might be the rampant fakery, how as soon as you walk through the gates onto Main Street, your senses are bombarded with an overwhelming aura of the uncanny valley. Disneyland's Main Street, USA, by the way, is based on a real town, Marceline, Missouri, which today boasts a population of 2,500 whole people. It was the town Walt Disney's family lived in when he was between the ages of four and nine, and Walt loved Marceline. He had all these nostalgic, sepia-toned ideas about it. In a letter to Marceline's newspaper in 1938, Walt wrote, to tell the truth, more things of importance happen to me and Marceline than have happened to me since and are likely to happen to me in the future. So Main Street USA is like walking into Marceline, Missouri around the turn of the century. And that is what I mean. It's a little ghostly. Walking into Main Street USA is a little disorienting. Like you're walking into a memory of America that you never personally experienced, but you still somehow knew was there. And I am not alone. The amount of people who dig Disneyland because it gives them a creepy feeling is staggering. Look, I am always discussing ideas for episodes with Mark and titles. I like to think I'm really good at naming the episodes of this show. And I asked Mark to do deaths at Disney a lot, but he would never do it because Mark thinks that this ground is too covered, and he's right. So many people are obsessed with the Disney creep feeling. Google this stuff. There are podcasts, blogs, tumblers, remember those, articles, entire YouTube channels, all dedicated to creepy stuff about Disneyland. We can't get enough, which is why. Next and there's no gentle way to segue into this, so I'm just gonna say it. I wanna talk about the head.
4: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So Walt Disney died on December fifteenth, nineteen sixty-six, at the age of only sixty-five. He died of lung cancer because he smoked a lot. And if you think having a constant smoking habit seems to go against all the perfection and cleanliness Walt Disney came to represent, so did he. Neil Gabler's biography, Walt Disney, published in 2006, is an extremely comprehensive, absolutely fascinating, and honest take on Walt Disney's life. In it, Gabler makes a point of showing the true Walt Disney, the determined, ambitious young visionary, and the perfectionist boss. Disney's employees would say, you always knew when the boss was coming down the halls to check on your work because he had a telling smoker's cough that was nearly constant. In Gabler's book, Walt Disney, after his empire is built, seems to be very aware that he has either inadvertently or purposely created a cult of personality around himself that does not match reality. Gabler quotes Disney saying, I am not Walt Disney anymore. Walt Disney is a thing. It's grown to become a whole different meaning than just one man. Walt Disney is quoted saying, I'm not Walt Disney. I do a lot of things Walt Disney wouldn't do. Walt Disney doesn't smoke. I smoke. Walt Disney doesn't drink. I drink. So it's a little hard to tell. Was the global outpouring of grief at Christmas time 1966 about Walt Disney? The man or Walt Disney, the thing? And oh man, was there an outpouring of grief. The Guardian article announcing his death seems to describe him as almost Christ like, pointing out that he was the quote, son of a carpenter. The day after Walt Disney died, Los Angeles lowered its flags to half mast. The LA Times ran half a dozen articles about Walt Disney, including an editorial quoted as saying, there will be grief in Bangkok and Bangor, in Cairo and Chicago, in Paris and Philadelphia, as grown-ups and moppets alike realize that this man's wonderful talent has been still. The Miami News ran a cartoon by Don Wright depicting Mickey surrounded by friends, Bambi, Donald, Goofy, Pluto, Dumbo, Jiminy Cricket, Thumper, Lady, Happy, Grumpy, Dopey, a Dalmatian puppy, and that mouse from Dumbo, whose name is apparently Timothy, all stand near each other in tears. The Disney family funeral, however, was private. Walt Disney's body was cremated on December 17th, 1966. His ashes were interred at Forest Lawn Memorial Park, Glendale, Los Angeles County, California, And yes, that is the same cemetery where Bogdan Delaro was buried less than a decade later. Disneyland itself stayed open. There was discussion about closing the park, as had been done for the assassination of John F. Kennedy some years before, but the attraction stayed open. Dick Nunes, who later went on to become the chair of Disney attractions, said of the decision to welcome the public, quote, Walt was always about doing right by the people. People have driven here to come to the park, and they are going to have a park to enjoy. So that's all very sweet and sentimental, but as I have covered, you can't keep the Disney creep factor down. Which is probably why, mere weeks after Walt Disney's death, a tabloid called the National Spotlight, Spotlight is spelled S-P-O-T-L-I-T-E, apparently ran a story about a reporter who breaks into the hospital, disguises himself as an orderly, and discovers Walt Disney's cryogenically frozen body. So, this rumor... (laughs) This clearly fake, ridiculous idea that Walt Disney's body, and if not his body, then just his head, is frozen somewhere waiting to be thawed has persisted and persisted and persisted. It persists the way the gerbil rumor about Richard Gere persists. There is a certain type of person who associates the name Walt Disney with a blue, dead, suspended head somewhere in the deepest bowels of Disneyland to this day. As late as September fifteenth, 2021, a rumor that Walt Disney's head was set to be thawed began to circulate. It began as an article published by the Daily News with the headline, 55 years after his death, Walt Disney's frozen body will be thawed December 2021 in an attempt to bring him back to life. Now, let's be very clear. The Daily News is a satirical publication. The article was satire. Still, on September 23rd, the Facebook page Disney After Dark shared the article gleaning more than 92,000 likes in less than a week. Suddenly, the internet was Disney head mania with thousands of people, most of them joking, one hopes, on pins and needles for the second coming of Walt Disney that December. He did not rise because he was cremated back on December 17th, 1966. The frozen head rumor is unstoppable. There is a, again, hopefully joke, theory that Disney's head is locked away somewhere beneath the Pirates of the Caribbean in Disneyland. And while that is all obviously untrue, it is, at least as rumors go, understandable reason number one why this stupid head thing is understandable i said walt disney died at the end of 1966 right well the very first person to actually be cryogenically frozen dies less than a month later on january 12th 1967 okay roll back the clock roll it back with me roll back to 1962 It is four years before Walt Disney passes after undergoing surgery for lung cancer. And a book has just been published, written by the father of cryonics himself, Robert Eddington. And that book is called The Prospect of Immortality. Eventually, The Prospect of Immortality was published in nine languages and was part of the Book of the Month Club. Eddington and his book were a media sensation, being featured in publications like the New York Times, Newsweek, and Time magazine. And yes, with his obsession with new technology, it is unlikely that Walt Disney had not at least heard of this book. Often referred to as complete nonsense by the greater scientific community, the concept behind cryonics is fairly simple. The Alcor Life Extension Foundation, this is wild, look this up. Alcor is spelled A-L-C-O-R. This is not Disneyland, this is real life. The Alcor Life Extension Foundation, founded in 1972 and located in Scottsdale, Arizona, describes cryonics thusly. Cryonics is the practice of preserving life by pausing the dying process using sub-freezing temperatures with the intent of restoring good health with medical technology in the future. So yes, the idea is that they freeze your body or just your head in liquid nitrogen and someday, in the future, we will have technology that can unfreeze you and bring you back to life. The first person to ever be frozen, or cryopreserved, was Dr. James Bedford. He was a psychology professor at the University of California. Okay, Bedford died of kidney cancer that had metastasized to his lungs, and then he had his body frozen. And he's not the only one. Alcor is only one company like this one. Excuse me. Nonprofit, and they boast 182 frozen bodies and 116 frozen heads, as well as 33 frozen dead pets. A fairly cursory glance at Google before this whole idea made me too sick to my stomach suggested that you can get your own body frozen for around $200,000 and your head frozen for $80,000. And I could talk about this all day because really there is a lot to unpack here and I'm going to suggest that maybe Mark put cryonics on the potential episodes list for the future because to be honest, this is something he will explain far better than me. Mostly because the whole thing totally freaks me out. But my point is, Walt Disney could have totally known and been interested in cryonics. He wasn't. He was cremated on December 17th, 1966. I am just saying, the dates do line up, and that is why the rumor is understandable. The second reason why the stupid head thing is understandable is that Walt Disney was always into the latest technology. The world of tomorrow. The carousel of progress. Which brings me to Tomorrowland. welcome to tomorrowland
1: before our preview of tomorrowland i'd like to read these few words of dedication a vista into a world of wondrous ideas signifying man's achievement a step into the future with predictions of constructive things to come tomorrow offers new frontiers in science adventure and ideals the atomic age the challenge of outer space and the hope for a peaceful and unified world. In
0: 1955, when Disneyland first opened, they paid for an insert in the Los Angeles Examiner that describes Tomorrowland as a place where 1955 becomes 1986. Why was Tomorrowland a 1950s version of 1986, you ask? Well, obviously, because 1986 was the year Halley's Comet was set to return. Of all the lands in Disneyland, Tomorrowland is the land where Walt Disney's obsession with futurism and utopias is most on display. Tomorrowland is often described as Disney's personal vision of the future. Of course, Tomorrowland has been through a lot of changes since 1955. Because it has a problem which Imagineers fittingly call the Tomorrowland problem. The Tomorrowland problem, put very simply, is that tomorrow always becomes today, and the future always becomes the present. In 1994, Tomorrowland went through a major redesign in an attempt to combat this problem. The idea was to create a, quote, future that never was, a science fiction fantasy version of the future, as opposed to what Tomorrowland was back in 1955. Because what the Tomorrowland of 1955 was attempting was to create a look at what life was actually going to look like in the fairly immediate future, the proverbial tomorrow. Walt Disney wanted park visitors to be able to walk into a world they were going to see in their own lifetimes. Maybe this new technology was just 20 or 30 years away. And to me, that is more fantastical than science fiction. That is hopeful and optimistic. Instead of seeing the terrifying sci fi aliens Tomorrowland came to represent after the 1994
4: rebranding,
0: you could see your own actual future, and all the wonder it was going to bring. And yes, Disneyland's early version of what 1986 was going to look like was a little funny, with chintzy, retro-looking attractions that felt dated as soon as they opened. But regardless, it was an exciting glimpse of what was going to come. Here are some fun predictions from early Tomorrowland. There was the ever popular Autopia attraction where anyone can drive regardless of age, how I loved it at 11. This attraction was meant to give Americans a glimpse into the soon to be national interstate system. From 1957 to 1967, one of the more notable attractions in Tomorrowland was the Monsanto House of the Future. The purpose of the home was to show off the possibilities of modern plastics, and you could tour it. The House of the Future featured picture phones where you could... (gasps) see someone's face while you talk to them on the phone, remote controls for televisions, flat screen televisions, and the kitchen even had a microwave oven. And of course, there was space travel. Y'all, there used to be a rocket ship in Tomorrowland. It was called the Tomorrowland Moonliner Rocket, and it would take you and your family to the moon. It was a simulated moon mission that took about 10 minutes, but still, this is 1955. Neil Armstrong didn't step foot on the moon for 14 more years. The rocket ship was what big futuristic dreams are made of when you wish upon a star. And then, and then, there was the carousel of progress.
1: Now, another of our World Fair exhibits that features the audio animatronics is the Carousel Theater of Progress.
0: Um, here, Walt Disney is going to stop and momentarily flirt with a magic carpet doll from It's a Small World.
1: Well, how do you do? <laughs> this is the Carousel Theater of Progress. In Act One, the audience meets an audio animatronic family. The time is just before the turn of the century.
0: So, as Walt mentioned just now, the Carousel of Progress was an attraction that was originally built for the 1964 World's Fair. It moved to Tomorrowland in 1967. Somewhere between a play and a ride, the Carousel was a story of American progress. In the ride, a set of animatronic characters meant to represent a, quote, typical American family, so white, heteronormative, dog, picket fence, you get the gist, show you what it's like living through the advent of electricity and the various technological advancements of the 20th century and, actually, now the 21st century. This ride is now located in Orlando and needs to keep updating for modern audiences. The, I guess gimmick of the Carousel of Progress and how it gets its name Carousel is that instead of having the stage move and change, the audience would actually rotate. You would be welcomed into the attraction by a Disneyland cast member acting as host. Then the audience would rotate clockwise. Believe it or not, that is somewhat important to this story. The audience would rotate clockwise around various stationary stages. Act one takes place at the turn of the century. The animatronic family whose story we're following mentions two brothers building a flying contraption in North Carolina, but they say it will never work. They are excited Thomas Edison is working on new electric lights. No more gas lanterns. There are new horseless trolleys and a machine that helps you do laundry in only five hours. Act two takes place in the roaring 20s. The set is filled with new electric appliances, the family is getting their news on the radio, and they're enjoying indoor plumbing. Act Three takes place in the fabulous 40s. The family has a television, and it even works sometimes. They also have a food mixer, which is being improperly used as a paint mixer to put up new wallpaper. Act four takes place in the 21st century. This is the act that gets the most updating as we are here in the 21st century and our actual technology just keeps getting more and more fantastical. There are voice automated appliances and automated plumbing. Grandma is playing on a virtual reality video game. After that, you leave the Carousel of Progress with its catchy, optimistic theme song in your ears, hopefully thinking, There is a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. The carousel was hugely popular, but as Disneyland moved into the 1970s, audiences for the old carousel attraction began to dry up. General Electric, who had sponsored the attraction since its conception, wanted a new audience for the carousel and asked that it be moved to Disney's new park in Orlando. This left the space open for the original Carousel of Progress available for Disneyland to create an attraction for the upcoming American Bicentennial Celebration. Okay, sorry. I have to just take a second here to acknowledge that they were getting ready for our country to be a whopping 200 years old. God, we're really such a baby country. It's amazing to think about that sometimes. Anyway, Disneyland's American Bicentennial celebration was set to have an attraction where the old carousel had been. It was an attraction that would have it all. 115 animatronic animals. Burl Ives, voicing the starring character. A brand new, never-before-seen design. Actually, the art was based on concept art from an animated movie called Chanticleer that had been in pre-production forever and was not getting made. The concept of America Sings really had nothing to do with Tomorrowland and was pretty out of place. Instead of being about the wonder of American progress, America Sings was simply a showcase of American music as sung by barnyard animals. But just like the Carousel of Progress, the attraction was split into six sections, a loading area, Four acts that the audience would rotate around counterclockwise this time okay it went in the opposite direction of the carousel of progress and an exit area in the introduction the animals would sing yankee doodle genie with the light brown hair and pop goes the weasel Act One was The Deep South, where you would hear songs like Lil Liza Jane, My Old Kentucky Home, Polly Wolly Doodle, and Down by the Riverside. Act 2 was called Heading West, where you would hear songs like I've Been Working on the Railroad and Home on the Range. Act 3 was the gay 90s. We're talking about the 1890s, obviously, where among other songs, you would hear Bill Bailey, Sweet Adeline. And of course, Tarara Boondier. And Act 4 was Modern Times, where you would hear modern hits like Hound Dog and See You Later, Alligator. America Sings opened at Disneyland on June 28, 1974. Just like with the Carousel of Progress, a Disney cast member, acting as host, would greet guests and get them started on their journey. One of those hosts was named Deborah Gale Stone. She was 18 years old, both the oldest child in her family and the only daughter— Debra was a beautiful blonde from Santa Ana, and she was working at Disneyland for the summer to save money for her college tuition at Iowa State University, where she was enrolled for the fall term. Debra was a talented scholar and athlete. She excelled at both track and swimming, and she had graduated from Santa Ana High School with top honors. She is also hands down one of Disneyland's most infamous deaths. So here's what happened. On July 8th, 1974, America Sings had been open for less than two weeks. Deborah called her parents to say that she and her boyfriend were engaged to be married. They had just gotten engaged that night, and Deborah was only 18, so she was really calling to ask her parents' permission. Then she went to work as a host for the evening on the new attraction. Near where the host sat, there was a stationary wall, And there were the rotating walls that moved along with the audience. When the attraction was the carousel of progress and the audience rotated clockwise around the stage, the moving wall was moving away from the stationary wall. But if you'll remember, in America Sings, the audience rotated counterclockwise. And no one quite knows how this happened. There was a small space where Deborah worked. And Deborah was a small girl, by the way. She was about 5'5 and only 100 pounds. There was a small gap between the only stationary platform and the moving wall, and it's unclear if Deborah maybe leaned into the gap or uh, tried to jump through to talk to another cast member or she slipped and fell. One source says Deborah had been horsing around somehow. Somehow, somehow, Deborah ends up between the stationary wall and the moving wall. At 11 p.m. that night, a patron in the adjacent theater heard what can only be described as gut-wrenching screams. And he saw what he thought was a child being, according to the City Weekly, June 16, 2004, quote, pulled between the moving walls and the stationary ones. The cast members said they also heard screams, but assumed it was part of the show. It was a brand new show, after all, and I can't blame them for not being totally familiar with it. But regardless, Deborah was slowly, agonizingly crushed to death. In the City Weekly article, Bill Stone, Deborah's father, recounts being told by the police what happened to his daughter. It was around... Two o'clock in the morning, when we got the phone call, he says. It was somebody who lived on another street saying the deputy sheriffs were looking for us. Just about the time I hung up, they pulled up to the house. Deborah's mother, Marilyn, is quoting saying, When you hear that, you go into shock. The feelings are there, but they're dulled to a point that you really aren't feeling anything. Deborah Gale Stone's death is remembered in excruciating detail across the internet to this day. And although America Sings kept playing at Disneyland until 1988, Deborah's death seems to have remained synonymous with the attraction in our collective memory. Disneyland itself shut down America Sings for two days, and then the ride continued on, business as usual. After a few days, Deborah Gale Stone's death was whisked away at 35 miles per hour underground. Disneyland, whether the corporation wants to admit it or not, is a weird, chintzy, retro, creepy place. And it seems to me that every effort they make to make Disneyland not weird, chintzy, retro, and creepy only makes it more so. And look, in an average day at Disneyland, there are around 50,000 visitors. And some of those people, statistically, some are going to die. I'm not saying that people die right and left at Disneyland. Statistically, very few people have died. It's only in juxtaposition with Disneyland's insistence on adhering to their original concept and branding Disneyland is clean, Disneyland is happy, Disneyland is new, Disneyland is perfect that makes these occurrences notable. Not that they happen, but that we are told they aren't supposed to happen. When Mark first started The Constant, we discussed every episode at length. Really, we still do. And in the beginning, we were really focused on the thesis of the show. Everyone, even Einstein, once in a while, is wrong. And we would look at a fascinating topic and say to each other, yes, it's all very interesting, but what did they get wrong? So... I've just gone on and on about the things that make Disneyland weird, (laughs) a little divergent from what our show usually discusses, I know. Um, And I've been asking myself, what did they get wrong? I think my point is very simple. You can't create a place that is happy all the time. You cannot create the happiest place on earth. I think people get fascinated by the weirdness and creepiness and terror at Disneyland so often because deep down we know it's a lie that something could be that pristine and we just have a desire to poke at it. We need grief. I think we, as humans, we crave it. We need grief to know what actual happiness looks like. Marilyn Stone was quoted as saying of her daughter, one thing she was always interested in was finding some way to help others. In the years following Deborah's death, dozens of people wrote to her parents to tell them how she had made an impact on their lives. One man said that she had inspired him to kick his drug habit. People don't really say things like that without the impetus of grief, in my experience. So I I guess that's it. I guess that's what I think. That human beings look at Disneyland and we love it. But we just feel like there's got to be more. That our sadness and fear cannot be eradicated by, you know, (laughs) singing barnyard animals and appliances from the future and Huckleberry Finn and Mickey Mouse. We just look at it and we know there must be Something more to it. Late at night. Taking away dead trees. Or underground being whisked away. You just kind of went down to visit yeah. Mom and Dad. That was Mom and Dad's house. Yeah. But nevertheless, my question still stands. Do you think <laughs> Do you think the Disney parks are magic?
2: I do. I do think they're magic. Like, I'm... I know there's plenty of, like, icky things and, um, whatever, questionable things, but I think it's exciting to go. I, like, I totally give myself over to the, to the magic of it when I go there. (laughs) I think it's cool.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening to my constant takeover. It was really fun to put together. If you are interested in this subject, there is plenty of stuff out there to keep you going. Um, I mentioned Walt Disney, The Triumph of American Imagination, the biography by Neil Gabler. If you don't know the YouTube series Defunct Land, definitely check it out. It's all about retired rides and attractions. Some really weird stuff. If you want to support our show, and we really hope you do, please rate and review at Apple Podcasts. If you would like to hear episodes early and ad-free, all while supporting the show, you can become a Patreon. And that also gives you access to the ever-interesting and mysterious secret feed. And as always, if you liked what you heard today and you know someone else who would enjoy the episode, go on and share that shit. Word of mouth is an excellent way to help your favorite podcast grow. Music for today's episode was by Epidemic Sound. And a special thanks to my colleague Jane, who shared her father's story with me over our lunch break. Okay, Mark we will be back next episode. For now, from Chicago, Illinois, we're on December 5th, 1901, on Trip Avenue. Elias and Flora Disney gave birth to a son and named him Walt. This has been The Constance.